Saul's consistent rebellion against the Lord and his clear commandments, now catches up to the tyrant king. Having had enough of his disobedience, God finally, once and for all, rends the kingdom from him, setting the stage for David's confirmation as the deliverer king, the shepherd of Israel. This is the 31st sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship, and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from Samuel in chapter 15. Samuel in chapter 15, beginning in verse 24, beginning in verse 24 through verse 35, the end of the chapter. By the inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned about to go away, laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle, and it rent. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And also, the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord thy God. So Samuel turned again after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then said Samuel, Bring ye hither to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came unto him delicately. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As thy sword hath made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house to Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel came no more to see Saul unto the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. Luke writing to us in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, the first six verses, chapter 17, 1 through 6. By the same Spirit, the Apostle records this. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must need have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. When they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, 
these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel once again presented unto us again this day. Now, having blatantly disobeyed the Lord's clear commandment, and it was a clear commandment, do this and make sure you get it all done. Having disobeyed the Lord's commandment concerning the Amalekites, Saul, having now the wrath of God upon him, and through Samuel, now pronounces God's judgment against him. And so after hearing Saul's hypocritical and lame confession, because that is what it was, it was hypocritical and lame, Samuel turns from Saul, most likely in disgust, knowing that his tenure as the captain of the Lord's army, the king of Israel, had now come to an end. In disgust, he turns and desiring not to be any longer in his company, Saul, not wanting Samuel to leave, perhaps hoping, hoping against hope for a second chance, or at least a third chance, or maybe even a fourth chance, or a fifth chance, Saul takes hold on the hem of Samuel's robe, and as Samuel turns, it tears. And it is at this time when the plan of God is fully revealed, declaring Saul's defrocking and the ascension of another king who will take his place. And we read this in 27 and 28 of 1 Samuel 15. So as Samuel turns about to go away, Saul lays hold upon the skirt of his mantle and he, it rends. And Samuel says to him, The Lord, the covenant God, Yahweh, hath rent the kingdom of Israel, torn it away. And this is a violent tearing. He's not just removing him. He's not just taking it away from him. He's tearing it from him. He's actually ripping it out of his hands. But the insult to injury here is that he's given it to a neighbor of thine and he's much better than you. Now there's a very practical lesson here. As there is always a practical lesson with Scripture. Yes, a historical lesson. Yes, an eschatological lesson pointed to the Christ. But there's a very practical lesson here as well. There is a time when God no longer shows mercy in the face of blatant disobedience. And while we think God winks at sin and will give us a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth chance, maybe that is not what's happening. Maybe it will be like Saul's case, when there is a time when God says, enough is enough, I will go no further, and now I will no longer show mercy for blatant disobedience with his lack of repentance, with his hypocritical mindset, And for Saul, the time had come. Now, while we're called to forgive our brethren 70 times 7, there can be no forgiveness to a self-justifying, unrepentant sinner who esteems the grace of God lightly. Those who are bent upon wickedness and violence, as it was in the case of Saul. Now this was not only the turning point for Saul, but also it was a turning point for the entire nation of Israel. Saul's illegitimately was king at this point, and his illegitimacy was now open to all of Israel. Now of course he would try to hide it by being even more tyrannical, but he was now the illegitimate king, not the true king. As the representative of Israel, Saul had acted as king and the covenant head for the entire nation, but now that that period was over, that era was done. 
And in this way, he is reflective of Adam, a great type, as we've seen, of Adam, since he typifies Adam in so many ways. Because as a result of his rebellion, Saul, like Adam, has the kingdom taken from him, and it is given to another, David the man after God's own heart. Adam, once in the garden, once he had rebelled, acting as king and covenant head in the garden, but once he rebels... The dominion mandate of the kingdom was taken from him, was literally rent from him, and was given to Christ in the same way that the kingdom is taken from Saul and given to David, who, as we know, is also a great type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the same way as David established the kingdom in his localized realm of Israel and Judah, Christ establishes his kingdom universally across the entire global order throughout history until the consummation of the age. Now, as a consequence of Saul's rebellion, Saul is stripped of his office and authority, even though outwardly, at least to the general population, he's still looked at as he's still the king. The reality is, however, different. The reality is he's an empty vessel, he's an empty shell, and Israel is without a legitimate king. Another consequence of Saul's defrocking is that, in a real way, Israel is also defrocked. They're without a king. And it was because they chose a pagan king that they have to bear some of the consequence of their decision. Their desire for a pagan king came with all that was attached to it. They wanted the shekel. They wanted that, that, that nickel. Now they're going to get the noose. They wanted the shekel. Now they're going to get the shackle. They're going to get the tyrannical king, the tyrannical king who would now be that wicked man even trying to kill the legitimate king, David, later on. And so when God tore the kingdom from Saul, he also effectually tore the kingdom from Israel. For Saul and for Israel, it was the end of an age. And we see the end of ages throughout history. For Saul and for Israel, this was a fearful time. It was the end of the age of Saul and the end of Israel's quest for a military king. And this must have been frightening. But in reality, this was necessary. The kingdom under Saul had to cease. It was a necessary change. It was a necessary shift. William James explains it this way, the commentator. He says, So often by strange and sometimes by terrible things, in righteousness does God answer us as the God of our salvation. So fulfills he the promise. I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths which they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. This was a dark time. This was a crooked time. America is facing such a time and America is facing such a shift. A country is facing the end of an age. And when we look at Scripture, we have to recognize that the principles of Holy Scripture, even though they are applied historically to Israel and Judah, they are principled. They are principles here that we can apply to any kingdom, any age, any nation, any time frame in history. America, I believe, is facing such a shift. Our country is facing such an end of this age. And while this shift has been happening gradually, as America has been sliding from a God-fearing democratic constitutional republic into a godless, socialistic, tyrannical structure, as it was in the 
case of Israel, there is a moment when that shift becomes the end of an age. And the question is this. When an age ends, is it always a bad thing? When an age ends, is it always a bad thing? Or does the end of an age provide opportunity for something better? Now, some who hold the United States Constitution as an inerrant, perfect, infallible doctrine, I submit to you that it is not covenantally structured. What we need is a covenant-structured constitutional document. So there's something better for America than what is. R.J. Rushton, he takes a positive approach in his observation when he says, the end of an age is always a time of turmoil, war, economic catastrophe, cynicism, lawlessness, and distress. But it is also an era of heightened challenge and creativity and of intense vitality. And because of the intensification of issues and their worldwide scope, never has an era faced a more demanding and exciting crisis. Now, my friend Dr. Thomas Smedley, in his book, How to Mend the Broken World, he adds this, Anxious times, troublesome times, sometimes calls forth greatness and inspire extraordinary gifted thinkers. The collapse of social orders is a regular event in history. The phoenix rise out of new orders from the ashes of the old, however, is a rare or interesting phenomena. When the miracle of cultural regeneration happens, we find the new orders are not created by the hand-wringing observers, but by the participants in a societal transformation. Did you get that? By participants, by having people involved, by precipitating a change. Smedley cites the shift during the Roman Empire from a godless society under the Caesars, especially at the end of the Caesars' tyrannical reign, Diocletian, that was a shift from that godless Roman Empire to a society filled by the writings and fueled by the writings of St. Saint Augustine when he wrote The City of God. He says this, The old Rome, formed by a love of self to the exclusion of God, was being supplanted by the new Rome, the City of God, formed by the love of God and neighbor. We are living in the old Rome, fueled by a love of self to the exclusion of God. And it's found even today in our churches. According to Smedley, as he looks to the historical accounts of social transformation, he believes a return to the various documents of liberty are the key to the restoration of liberty, righteousness, and equality. For example... The American Constitution must be augmented. It must be retooled to be a covenant document. We have to go back to the covenant documents, the covenant constitutions of the several states that were written during the 1600s to get a feel of what America should be instead of looking at what America is. He continues, he observes this. He says, For scholars in the West... The literary signposts of history are familiar landmarks. The Magna Carta, 
Martin Luther's 95 Thesis and on the bondage of the will, Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, Augustine's Confessions in the City of God, the Rights of Man and the Citizen, Karl Marx's, even Karl Marx's, Das Kapital and the Communist Manifesto. These works launched new social realities by redefining the basic rules of the game. Each of these documents especially the liberation documents, the documents of liberty. Each of these documents define a meaningful new social order in the aftermath of social implosion. Now, this makes perfect sense. But I would add, many of the documents of Christendom's ecumenical councils should be studied, as well as the writings of the first century church fathers those are essential to this shift, this, this Christocentric transformation of a nation. Moses told Israel that their opening documents for life and government was the law of God. Israel was to go back to the law of God each year in order to refresh their understanding, especially the king. He had to write it out himself. They were to go back to the law of God each year to refresh their understanding of what God had required them by covenant, by their agreement to that covenant document, in order to retain their freedom and a right relationship with God. If they failed to follow that covenant model, failed to obey the law of God, they would be playing with fire and they would go down into not more liberty, but less liberty. This morning, in our session, this morning, I asked the question, are we in America free? And the answer is no. We are not free we are being violently assaulted by the powers that be. And that is because even within the church of Jesus Christ, the law of God is now spurned, shunned. We have Old Testament is no longer something that we should study. We should just go back to the New Testament because that's where Jesus loves everybody. Well, I don't know if Jesus loved the Pharisees or the wicked. No, he was condemning even them at that time because Jesus is the same. We need to go back to the Word of God, the law of God. Even as Israel was to go back to the law of God to make sure that they were square with the liberation that was promised by God. The king had to write it out in his own handwriting, the entire book of the law, so that he would be reminded of his obligation as a minister under God to do what was right according to the Scriptures. Now obviously both Saul and the elders had either forgotten this commandment or they simply ignored it. They just wanted a king after their own heart. They wanted a king after the pagan nations of the world, to be modeled after the pagan nations of the world. And by doing so, they established a governing structure which was diametrically opposed to what God had commanded. And that was going to end in tyranny. And that tyranny was going to bring Israel misery and finally death. And the death that it would bring would be death to the priests of God. Because in order for Saul to be his God, he had to eliminate the priests of God. What Israel lacked was faith. They didn't trust God because they didn't believe God's word. They thought they knew better than God. How many people think they know better than God? They had allowed the fear of the Philistines to dictate their policies and all of their decisions. This was a carnal response to a political and a military problem. Instead of asking why they were being molested by the wicked nations of the world, they focused on what was happening and because they weren't looking toward God, they were seeking humanistic remedies. And this secular decision to call for a pagan king found its expression in what is known as utilitarianism. Utilitarianism is defined as the doctrine that actions are right if they are useful. 
doesn't matter if they're really right, doesn't matter if it's ethical, doesn't matter if it squares up with the Word of God, as long as it works, as long as it benefits more people than not. In the same way that Israel was sick with secular humanism, so too is the modern church. When people with entertainment, when people with a squishy, wonky gospel, and that's what you're going to get out of the people. For what you win people with, you win people to. If you win them with the Christ of God, the fear of God, and the love of God, yes, that has to be mixed in, but we cannot put the cart before the horse. Repentance comes before salvation. So in the same way that Israel was sick with secular humanism, so is the church today. In other words, in the church's mind, if it works, got to get them in. No matter if it's ethically sanctioned by Scripture, even if the message is a little bit softened, we just got to get them in because that, we got that new, new building project. We've got that new gymnasium that we need to build. Utilitarianism would say that an action is right if it results in the happiness of the greatest number of people in a society or a group. So, of course, churches want to make people happy. Because that's what it's all about, isn't it? Isn't what life is all about? Be happy? Don't you want to be happy? I want to be happy. But not at the expense of my soul. And then again, we need to ask the question, who decides what is happiness and which group should be happy? And so instead of promoting a new age of faith, as it was in the Middle Ages, the church has promoted a new age of secular humanism and pragmatism. What so many in the modern church in conjunction with the secularists of society, have failed to recognize is that every anti-Christian culture is barbaric. And what we're developing here is a barbaric culture. Pragmatism and utilitarianism being devoid of biblical ethics only leads to chaos and barbarism. Ancient Israel had ignored the effects of the barbaric and tyrannical Canaanite culture because it suited them at that time. They only said, oh, we want to be like them because they're powerful. But they didn't understand that they were barbaric. They were barbaric in everything they did. They were total wickedness. It was wickedness incarnate. Barbaric nations. Now, many in our nation have done likewise. The fact remains, however, that every culture that has rejected Christianity has become a murderous, tyrannical culture. Just think about it. Every culture, every nation that has rejected the Christ of Scripture has become barbaric, tyrannical, and murderous. In his book, A New Day of Small Beginnings, Pierre Cotiel observes this. The false gods the idols, then as today, have always craved the flesh and blood of men. The last two centuries of modern anti-Christian revolutions have only given further evidence of this fact. The worship of Moloch, mentioned several times in Holy Scripture, the worship rendered to the state as God, to the welfare state, to the totalitarian state, has always required complete and total control over men, that is, their servitude, and when it so desires, their complete and total sacrifice. The reader would do well to turn again to 1 Samuel 8, 11-18, which announces, in rather moderate fashion, what will eventually happen to a people who reject the supreme reign of God in favor of that of man or the state. Modern historians and intellectuals, working from a humanistic bias, are not only inclined to disparage the Christian civilization of the age of faith, 
but they are prejudiced adherents to Jean-Jacques Rousseau's myth of the noble savage, which touted the innate goodness of the non-Christian man, leading them systematically to overlook the evils prevalent in pre-Christian societies or post-Christian societies, insofar as it applies such as to slavery and human sacrifice, end quote. What is good about an anti-Christian society? And the answer should be nothing. Nothing. So what Israel needed, and what America needs, is a return to the age of faith, dependence upon God and obedience to His Word. It's as simple as that. It's not rocket science. It's as simple as that. But this is not only a commission for church leaders, it is a commandment of God for all leaders, especially those in the executive, legislative, and judicial positions of power. The problem with these leaders, and that includes Christians who lead in the civil realm, is that they think that once they take office, they no longer are to advance the kingdom of God. Think about it. You vet a political candidate, and they say, I love Jesus. What are you going to do in government? Ask any government or ecclesiastical leader why they want to go to seminary, why they want to get into politics, why they want to take that position if, uh, of power. And if they do not answer to advance the crown rights of King Jesus, or if they do not answer to advance the kingdom of God on earth in time and in history from my position of power, they are not worthy to be leaders. Too often... Once these politicians who are Christians, not all of them, I know some Christian men who are faithful to advancing the crown rights of Christ. But too often, for some of these leaders, there's a psychological shift into thinking that once they take office, they need to advance constitutional integrity rather than the integrity of biblical law and biblical principles. Now, while constitutional integrity is good, it's God's law that undergirds that constitution. And while constitutional integrity is good, it is still not the tool to advance the kingdom of God. Legislators, lawmakers especially, must remember that they are in the position of power to do one thing, and one thing only, as ministers of God, to advance God's agenda, not the agenda of the nation's heritage, the will of the people, or what seems to be socially acceptable to the day at hand. And that's what we have here. We do not have principled leaders. And this is always a problem for the church, and it remains a problem for our civil leaders. Saul was unable to bring about a biblical reformation because he was bent upon accumulating power for himself and then accommodating the wicked desires of the elders since their wicked desires were also Saul's wicked desires. Modern church and civil leadership, instead of promoting biblical reformation and social reconstruction according to scripture, have accommodated themselves to the pagan ways of the world. Just, just visit any church. In fact, we should, we should take a field trip one Sunday and visit some churches just to see what is actually going on in some of these churches. Now, maybe we'll find a few that are faithful. But fundamentally, I say this. If more churches were faithful, we would not be in the cultural crisis that we're in today. Because the culture is a report card of the church and the culture gets a failing grade. Now, while it's especially disheartening for our civil leaders to fail in their calling, it is even more tragic when the clergy fails in their calling since 
supposed to be the gatekeepers of social righteousness. But this is nothing new. In other words, it's not a 20th or a 21st century phenomenon. From the beginning of the New Testament church age, many of the early church fathers who came on the scene after the apostles fell into this accommodation trap. Some even adopted the heretical view of the Gnostics which John the Apostle, at that first stage of the, of the fledgling church, had to address in his first epistle. Because right away, the church had begun to go astray. Because Christianity was born into an age of Greek and pagan ideas, in the way America is now consumed with Greek and pagan ideas, secular ideas, philosophies and theologies, which are not only prevalent, but they were very powerfully entrenched in the minds of the men of John's era and in our era. Cortiel explains again, he says, in the first, early first centuries, certain early church fathers chose instead to pursue a course of accommodation seeking to harmonize the creation-fall-redemption theme of biblical Christianity with the form-matter theme of Greek paganism. So it was right away, right at the beginning. The seeds of apostasies began at the first century. He continues, Thinking they had stripped these Greek concepts of their pagan elements, they failed to see just how deeply these concepts were rooted in the basic pagan schema. They also risked giving greater importance to a mythical, contemplative, theoretical knowledge of God than to the obedience of faith of the faithful, thus relegating the Christian religion to nothing more than a superior ethic. That's the problem. Too many people look at Christianity as, I'll just be good, I'll just be moral, I'll have a better ethic than the people out there. That is not Christianity. That is moralism. And moralism finds its end in hell. The idea of a contemplated, mystical Christianity or a knowledge-based Christianity or a moral-based Christianity rather than an obedient, action-oriented, and I underline that, action-oriented Christianity resulted in the church and its gospel's presentation sterile. If we are not action Oriented. If we are not acting on our faith, Christianity becomes sterilized. So, God had finally had enough of Saul, his insolence, his rebellion, and as a result, he rips the kingdom violently from him, and he plunges the nation of Israel into chaos. Now, this must have been frightening for Saul, but not for the fact that he had offended God. He wasn't so worried that he offended God, but rather that his pride... And his love of the preeminence was being taken from him. That's what he was worried about. That Israel would see that he was taken out of the kingly position. He would be shamed. He didn't want to be shamed. But he didn't really worry about being disobedient. But before he begs for mercy, Samuel closes any possibility that Saul will be forgiven. He closes any possibility that there might be a glimmer of hope for souls being reinstituted into his position as king. Reinstatement was not an option. Notice how Samuel identifies God. Notice what he calls God here. The strength of Israel. As if to say, God is the strength of Israel. You're not the strength of Israel. You thought you might be the strength of Israel. You thought the power was in your hand. You thought that you might be the deliverer of Israel. But you, once again, you are wrong. 
Verse 29, And also the strength of Israel will not lie or repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. See, God was not going to turn from this decree. Saul was finished as king. Now permit me to again repeat the lesson. Once God decides that a rebellious individual, family, church, or nation is consistently bent upon rebellion without repentance, he finally cuts them off without any hope of reclamation. God told Israel that within this final sermon, Moses was given this word of God to the people before they entered into the promised land. Notice what Moses says. Deuteronomy 32. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill, I make alive, I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand, for I lift up my hand to heaven and say I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh and my sword shall devour flesh and that with the blood of the stain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. This is fearful language. Is God being mean? Some people say, well, God, you know, the God of the Old Testament, you know, he just, he just so mean. I don't like to read about that God. I like the Jesus God. But this is the God of the New Testament as well. So what God is saying here is that there will be a time when forgiveness and mercy will no longer be available once God has taken his sword out of its sheath and begin the slaying. Mercy and forgiveness will not always be available. Mercy and forgiveness, let me say it again, will not always be available if rebellion willfully continues without an honest move to repentance. When you think of God as the God who will just wink at sin, then you think that, well, I could just do anything I want and at the end God will just forgive me. So hearing this, that the king was rent from him, Saul begs for forgiveness. But just like Saul, too little, too late. His plea is too little and much too late. And he says, I have sinned, yet honor me now. I pray thee, before the elders of my people, notice what he's concerned about. He's not concerned about God. He's concerned about his honor before the people, before the elders, and before Israel. And turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. So Saul's confession is lame. He fails to say anything about dishonoring God or betraying his covenant obligation as king. It's even hard for him to even admit that. And it's even hard to believe that he's actually owning his sin. I don't believe he's even owning his sin. He seems to be only worried about his own honor before the elders and before the people of God in Israel. And obviously he has yet to be humbled. Obviously he is unable to be humble because humility comes by the hand of God and God has removed his hand from Saul. Commentator Richard Phillips observes, he says, Note that Saul lacks concern for God's offended honor and the practical harm of his sins, but focuses only on his own restoration to honor and authority. This comes through clearly after Samuel has rejected Saul's empty confession. Saul replies, I have sinned, yea, honor me now before the elders of my people in Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord thy God. He still wants to have an open show that he's still right with God, and he's not. Cyril Barber adds this, he says, The confession of Saul was not so much the result of inward conviction as it was an evidence of Saul's fear of losing the acclaim of the people. And that's why you have legislators in Congress invoking God. 
Oh, you know, we pray. Don't we go to church? We do this, we do that. So at this point, Saul loses both the support of God and Samuel. Verse 31, So Samuel turned again after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. But of course, his worship was in vain. So here we see Samuel turning after Saul, not to comfort him, but rather to complete the task. See, when you read the scripture, it seems like, oh, then Samuel got soft and he turned again to Saul. No, 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 no. He's turning again to Saul to complete the task that Saul failed in. Because Saul failed to accomplish his commandment by not killing Agag. He was supposed to kill Agag and he kept him alive. So recognizing that he had failed miserably, Saul is trying to make up for it. He's trying to backpedal. He worships the Lord, hoping for reinstatement into his office, but to vain attempt. Again, we have to ask, isn't the Lord full of mercy and compassion? Is there no forgiveness for Saul? And the answer is, Saul had tried the patience of God to the extent where his every action now was an attempt to establish himself, not to re-establish himself as God's man, but to establish himself as his own master. And so once again, we see that there is a time when there's no longer forgiveness as it was at this point with Saul. There's another doctrinal aspect to this. Saul was never slotted for forgiveness. He was never to be forgiven by God from the foundation of the earth since he was made for the very purpose of typifying the old Adamic rebellious generation who would seek to be a law unto themselves proposing that they would be as God. Now, while this is a very hard doctrine nevertheless, according to Proverbs 16.4, and a lot of people don't like Proverbs 16.4, and I understand why. See, in Proverbs 16.4, God ordained certain men, especially for the day of destruction, as he did with Pharaoh, as he did with Esau, Demas, Judas, Ahab, Jezebel, those of Sodom and those of the flood. Those were slotted for destruction from the foundation of the earth. Solomon confirms this hard reality in Proverbs 16.4. Notice what it says. And I can understand why people who have a different gospel don't like to read the Old Testament. The Lord hath made all things for himself. Yea, even the wicked for the day of calamity. Even the wicked for the day of doom. The word here in the Hebrew is the day of evil, but it is translated as calamity or doom. Now Paul confirms this. He makes sure that in the New Testament we understand this. In Romans 9:11 and following, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy upon, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. He continues, for the scripture saith to Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up so that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will he hardens. Thou wilt say unto me, why does he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? And Paul responds, Nay, but O man, let me put it in the vernacular, very common language, who do you think you are to 
reply that way against God. This is God. If he chooses to save one and not another, that's his business. So, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another to dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory? Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. That should strike fear into everyone's heart. So violating God's law, which was clearly given to Saul, Samuel now proceeds to fulfill what Saul was unable and unwilling to do. And so Samuel commands Agag to be brought to him in verse 32. Now notice, first, Agag, obviously anticipating that Samuel is going to kill him, approaches him, the King James says delicately. The word is actually trembling. He knows exactly. He, he might have not trembled before Saul, but he's certainly going to tremble before Samuel. So he approaches Samuel trembling. Now, why? Why would Agad be so fearful? Remember, what did Israel say? Oh, Samuel, you're an old man. Your sons, they don't obey you. You're an old guy. Samuel's going to say, I'll show you this old guy. Why was he so fearful? Because Samuel was still the Nazarite warrior priest. He was the warring priest. He was the warrior. His commission never ended. He still had long hair according to his Nazarite vow, which he maintained. And he would be in constant submission to God. He also, being a Nazarite warring priest... He also was abstaining at this point from wine and strong drink, since the drinking of such was to be done only after victory and not before, and victory had not been accomplished. But once victory was accomplished, only then could he cut his hair and drink wine. But that had not yet happened, and he approaches Agag with the long hair and his robe and his fire in his eyes. I could just imagine, and Agag, the great king of the Amalekites, the warring king, the vicious, mighty king, he is now reduced to just a trembling child. And that is what Agag saw. He saw a man of fierce countenance. Even in his old age, he was a man of war. And Samuel showed him as much. With vengeance in his eyes, body on fire, his blood boiling, as if in a cauldron for the glory of God and the justice that would follow. And that's what kind of passion we have to have. And that's the kind of passion you don't see anymore. Where the preacher gets in the pulpit and he preaches hissing hot sermons that strip the conscience of any, any self-adulation, stripping the conscience of any hope of, of, of self-dependence and laying it all out in, the open, out in the open to God. That's what Agag saw. He saw a man of conviction. And so he exclaims, Surely the bitterness of death is past. This too is an incredible statement, especially from a pagan. In effect, Agag is saying that the bitterness that he brought upon Israel by killing the women and the children is now going to be rectified by his death, blood for blood. And it was Samuel that would do it when it should have been Saul. So Agag is actually acknowledging his slaughter, his execution as a righteous judgment for his wicked, murderous deeds. Could you imagine he understands that he should be killed? 
But today, the pagans of the world say, oh, no, no, we can't kill murderers. We can't kill rapists. We can't kill kidnappers. The sex traders, oh, we can't catch them and kill them. They'll just have to go to prison. Blood for blood, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand. And Agag, the pagan that he was, even understood what was the right sentence to be passed upon him. And Samuel was going to do that. The word used here for pass actually to be translated as to call back, as if to head off God's wrath because of his execution. You see, Saul's sin by not killing Agag was more than just his personal rebellion in not killing the man. His sin was that if he refused to execute Agag, he in fact, as the head of the nation, was bringing the entire nation of Israel God's wrath. When the civil magistrates do not execute judgment properly, biblically, God's wrath does not only come upon them individually, God's wrath comes upon the nation as a whole. Our nation is cursed because of the blood that has not been shed against these magistrates. Saul's sin was more than just his personal rebellion and not slaying Agag. The blood of the slain Israelites would never have been vindicated if Samuel didn't act. And so Samuel, in order not to have the blood of the slain violating the nation, he brings justice and he has to cleanse the land. He has to cleanse the land of the blood because David could not then become king of a nation that was polluted with blood. It had to be purified. And Samuel is going to purify it. And Agag knew this, even while Saul did not. So Samuel wastes no time in bringing swift judgment, swift justice. But before he does, he declares Agag's offense as if he's doing this in a court of law, as if he's in a courtroom. And he's going to carry this out after he brings judgment. Notice what he says in verse 33. And this is so important because this is, again, a covenant lawsuit against the wicked. And Samuel said, As thy sword had made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel then, so there's the declaration. This is what you did. This is what has to happen. That's the lawsuit. That's the judgment. But then notice what he does. And Samuel, you would think Samuel just took off his head. That'd be ugly enough. That'd be judgment, right? No. He cuts him into pieces. In the sight of heaven, He cuts Agag into pieces. Now two things stand out here. This is pure lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Tooth for tooth, eye for eye, hand for hand, foot for foot. Pure judgment, pure righteous judgment. Agag made others childless, now he will be childless. Agag murdered, now he must be murdered. He must be executed. Secondly, Samuel doesn't just cut his head off. He doesn't stab him. He doesn't burn him. He cuts him into pieces. Now, if we're going to be consistent with our hermeneutics, in our understanding of what it means to be cut in pieces, we must conclude, or at least we should be very safe in speculating, that he cut Agag into 12 pieces. One piece for each of the tribes of Israel. And we might even assume that he would then deliver them to each of the tribes of Israel, saying to them, this is what should have happened, this is not what happened, and this is the king that you chose that failed to obey God who brought blood upon the land. 
See, Saul had used the very same intimidation as did the Levitical priest in the book of Judges. Now Samuel turns it upon Saul to his own destruction by cutting Agag into 12 pieces. Samuel then finally separates himself from Saul and returns to his home in Ramah, while Saul returns to his home in Gibeah. Now, it seems from that statement that these two would never meet again, and yet they do. They do meet again later on in 1 Samuel 19, when Saul goes to see Samuel at Naoth. So they do see each other once again. And finally we read this. And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. Samuel mourned for Saul. This is a sad ending. You see, Samuel really thought perhaps, perhaps the man would be repentant. So he mourns for Saul, but the Lord repents that he had ever made Saul king over Israel. This is a sad ending for Samuel, at least as much as it concerns Saul. By establishing Saul as king, Israel suffered much damage and will suffer more damage. It is said that even the Lord repented. The only saving grace for Samuel now before he dies, the only hope that he could have even now before he dies, and he's on the precipice of his death, is that he will anoint the future king who would be a righteous king, the young man David of the lineage of Jesse. In this, I believe Samuel found great joy. He found peace because he knew that there would be hope in the future. In another generation, not Saul, but David, recognizing that God had not forgotten to redeem Israel from the tyranny of Saul and the military oppression of the Philistines. I believe that God has hope for us today, provided we stand up and be obedient to the word of God in every realm of our lives. In the next chapter, we are made privy to the hope of Israel when Samuel spies out David and finally ordains him as the true king, a great type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.